Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Camille, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Schutt. Dr. David is a medical director and senior consultant with Greenfield Health Systems in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Schutt served as the medical director of Acuramenta Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Schutt was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Schutt, you may go ahead. Thank you, Camille. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Schutt and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, author in the room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, that is what is published in recent JAMA articles, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care in the real world. Author in the room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern time, with the next call being on March 21st. The article for that call will be Development and Validation of Improved Algorithms for the Assessment of Global Cardiovascular Risk in Women, the Reynolds Score, by Dr. Paul M. Bridker. Please join us. Many organizations have made author in the room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today our featured author is Dr. David Gans, first author of the article uh, titled, Will My Patient Fall?, published in the January 3rd issue of JAMA. David Gans is a staff physician and a special fellow at the Geriatrics Research, Education, and Clinical Center in the Greater Los Angeles Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. He also is a clinical instructor in the Division of Geriatrics and the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Gans received a joint MD-PhD uh, degree uh, from Harvard in 2001 and completed internal medicine residency in 2003 and a clinical geriatric fellowship in 2004 at UCLA. In 2006, he finished the Robert Wood Johnson VA Clinical Scholars Program at UCLA. Dr. Gans' research focuses on the measuring and improving the quality and cost-effectiveness of care for frail older adults. Uh, welcome, Dr. Gans. Thanks, Dr. Shute. It's a pleasure to be here. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Gann's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of author in the room is for you to hear directly from the author about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, we will help you translate what's in this paper into changes applicable to your practice. Here's how the call will proceed. Dr. Gans will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his or her findings, and then I will take about five minutes to draw out some of the implications for a real-world real world practice setting and to set the stage for your questions and comments. I want to emphasize how important your participation is in these calls. This is a wonderful forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but in offering up your experience in this area will be helpful to the call. 
Interest in today's call has been wonderful with approximately 200 phone lines connected to this call, many of those with multiple individuals participating. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. On one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites as well. Now let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Gans, who will provide an overview of his article. Dr. Gans. Thanks very much, Dr. Shute. Um, again, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, this overview is really designed to set the stage for your questions. Um, it's just going to be the briefest uh, discussion of the article, what I think are sort of the most important findings. Um, this call is for you, so make sure that you get your questions answered after I finish. Um, there are really three main points from the article that, I, that I've at least taken home from it. Um, the first point is that screening for falls is really easy to do. You just have to ask two basic questions. One, have you fallen in the past year? And two, do you have a walking or balance problem? The second point is that most older patients who do have a history of falls in the past year or a gait and balance problem have at least a 50-50 chance of falling in the coming year. And these are the patients who may need a more thorough evaluation. And the final point is that to make screening easy for new patients, you have several options. One is if you're already using a pre-visit questionnaire um, for new patients, you can add in a question about history of falls in the past year or history of gait and balance problems and just include it as part of your pre-visit questionnaire. The other thing you could do is have office staff ask the fall screening questions routinely when patients are being checked in. Okay, and I just wanted to give you a little bit of background. Um, the project started with a basic problem that came to me when I was seeing patients, which was what's the best way to decide who's at high risk for falls and who needs further evaluation? And my own experience navigating the literature was sort of frustrating because everybody has their own favorite risk factor for falls, and there is one review that says there's over 300, you know, risk factors for falls, and it just doesn't make any sense. It's really hard to put the pieces together because nobody can ask that many questions in clinical practice. And so my guiding question was, is there any way to simplify the literature to generate a systematic approach to screening and treating patients for falls. And so to answer this question, my co-authors and I first spent some time conceptualizing the problem of falls. And our biggest help was actually a previous systematic review of randomized trials of interventions to prevent falls, which is cited in our article. In that review, there were seven common components to a multifactorial falls assessment. This is the assessment that's done for people who are found to be at high risk. And so the seven components are number one, assessing orthostatic vital signs, two, visual examination, three, gait and balance examination, four, medication review, five, functional status assessment, including basic and instrumental activities of daily living, six, cognitive evaluation, and seven, assessment of hazards in the home. In this um, meta-analysis of randomized trials, all of those trials, almost all of them did these seven components, or at least most of these seven components. And overall, the relative reduction in the fall rate if you did those seven things was 30 to 40 percent, which is pretty sizable. Um, all but one of these seven components could be done by clinicians in the office. The, the only one that would require um, going outside the office is the home hazard evaluation, which can be done through home health. 
So we basically asked ourselves whether any of these components, such as a gait and balance examination, could also be used to screen patients for high fall risk. Now this is sort of a subtle point, but the idea was if you could use one of these seven components or six components as a screening tool, if a patient screened positive, you wouldn't have to do it again because you had already done it in the screening process and you wouldn't have, you'd have less work to do when you got to the multifactorial assessment. Um, so we went ahead and we did our review. We, we actually reviewed about 400 articles and we were looking for follow-up studies that included a multivariable analysis of fall risk factors. Um, again, we were looking for risk factors that fell into those six categories that can be done in the office, orthostatic hypotension, visual impairment, gait or balance impairment, medications, functional impairments in activities of daily living, or cognitive impairment. And we, the studies that we were interested in had to look at whether risk factors that were present at baseline were associated with future falls over the next six to 12 months. And we were interested in two things from these articles that we were, re we were reviewing. First, in how many studies was a given risk factor statistically significantly associated with future falls when other risk factors had been controlled for in the analysis? And second, we looked at the strength of the association between a given risk factor and future falls. Here's what we found. Our first finding was that asking patients whether they had fallen in the past year was the best predictor of future fall risk. Now, I guess that's not so surprising. Usually, it turns out that whatever, you know, if, if somebody has a history of heart disease, they're more likely to have heart disease. And in the, in, in the same way, somebody who has a history of falls is more likely to fall in the future. Now, this wasn't one of our pre-planned risk factors to look at, but the association was so powerful with future falls that we had to acknowledge its importance. And in fact, all studies that examined whether a patient had a history of falls in the past year found that this risk factor was statistically significantly associated with future falls, even after other factors were controlled for in the multivariable analysis. Now, as far as the strength of this risk factor goes, there's about a two-fold increase in falls risk. So for example, if your baseline risk of falling in the next year is one in four, which is pretty typical for an older adult, um, if, if the person also had a history of falls in the past year, their risk would go up to 50-50, a 50-50 chance of falling in the next year. The second finding of interest um, in our systematic review was that besides having a history of falls, having a gait or balance problem was a pretty good predictor of future falls. About two-thirds of studies that looked at gait and balance problems found that these were statistically significantly associated with future falls when other factors had been controlled for. Now, important for our discussion today, it turned out that asking patients whether they have a walking or balance problem is just as good a predictor of future falls as examining their gait and balance. And since asking about things is often easier than examining something, this is really important when thinking about the best screening strategy. Admitting the fact that not all patients can give you a straight answer when you ask a question if they have cognitive impairment, for example. So from these two basic findings, we came to the conclusion that screening for high fall risk is probably most efficient as a separate process from the full evaluation of the high-risk patient. We could use two simple screening questions about history of falls and about gait or balance problems and identify high-risk patients that way. And anyone who answered yes to either question could get a full fall evaluation. Now, how might you implement screening in your practice? I'm just going to provide a little overview of what we do at, at UCLA. 
um, we start with a pre-visit questionnaire for new patients. Um, this gets mailed out a week in advance of a new patient appointment, and it covers most of the health history that a physician would want from a new patient, but it also includes a question about history of falls in the past year. Um, based on our results, we could also add in a question about history of walking or balance problems in the same section of the questionnaire. And uh, if you're interested in the questionnaire, go to the article uh, in JAMA, and the URL for the website is there, and everything is publicly available. Um, the nice thing about this questionnaire is that you don't have to spend precious time during the patient visit collecting routine information. If the patient turns out to be high risk for falls, you see it right there in the questionnaire, and you can address this problem either on the new patient visit or a subsequent visit. So the pre-visit questionnaire can be a good vehicle for screening new patients for high fall risk. For follow-up patients, trained office staff should be able to screen patients in about 30 seconds. However, figuring out a good screening process does not address what to do once you've found out that a patient is high risk. And it's particularly hard in a busy primary care practice to remember all the components of the fall evaluation and to have time to do everything. And I'm sure that if you audited my charts, you'd find that my evaluations weren't perfect either. So it turns out that a team of researchers at UCLA and RAND have been thinking about how to get the fall evaluation done most efficiently. And the Assessing Care of Vulnerable Elders, or ACOV project, has come up with structured visit forms for falls, which remind the clinician about what to do for a patient who's at high risk. And for more information on these, I would refer you to an article by David Rubin, which is in the December 2003 issue of the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. And in addition, to get the structured visit notes from the UCLA website, you'd want to go to www.geronet, that's spelled G-E-R-O-N-E-T, dot U-C-L-A dot E-D-U slash centers slash ACOVE, A-C-O-V-E, and then click on the Office Forms link. Now, if you use an electronic health record, some of these systems allow you to build in screening for falls and a full fall evaluation into the system. And in fact, uh, we are working with a medical group that was able to do this. The electronic health record can be made smart in the sense, for example, that patients who screen positive for falls, um, it will automatically flag medications um, in the case if a patient screens positive. So if they're on a benzodiazepine, for example, it'll um, flag that medication and, and suggest to the clinician to possibly discontinue it if it's clinically appropriate. Another approach that we've been exploring to make sure that high-risk patients get a full evaluation at UCLA is to have a nurse practitioner co-manage patients with falls and other chronic conditions um, alongside physicians. And so if a patient screens positive for falls, you could refer the patient to the nurse practitioner, who is essentially, in our case, a chronic care specialist. In our clinic, the nurse practitioner uses structured visit notes for falls to make sure that all elements of the full fall evaluation are performed. Now, I did want to make one other last point. Although we've attempted to make a fall screening algorithm where any patient who has a history of falls in the past year or a history of gait and balance problems gets a full evaluation, you still have to use your head. Um, there are low-risk patients who, because they're very physically active, may sustain a fall during physical activity, and that can happen to anyone once in a while. And so these patients, these patients may not necessarily urgently need a full fall evaluation. And likewise, even though some patients do not have a history of falls or a history of gait and balance problems, they may still be appropriate for a full fall evaluation depending on the circumstances. So I just wanted to reiterate um, there the key points. And basically, you can screen patients for falls by asking about a history of falls in the past year or a history of walking or balance problems. And if patients answer yes to either of these questions, they may have a risk of falls in the coming year of about 50%. And you may want to do a full fall evaluation for those patients. 
and the screening can be done quite simply through a pre-visit questionnaire or by trained staff during a patient's check-in. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Shute. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Gans, both for your uh, excellent research and your summary of that. You know, this is clearly, I think, an important clinical problem. Uh, I think it's well known the risk that uh, geriatric patients face from falling, and I think it's often a challenge for those of us in, in primary care to really know how to impact that in a way that we can actually implement in a busy primary care setting. And what I really appreciate about your research is you have, at least on the, on the screening side, boiled it down to something that is clearly effective, uh, that's something simple, and that we can get done fairly quickly. So, again, thank you for your good work. Um, I also want to set a little broader context by acknowledging that uh, fall assessment is now getting on the radar screen of many other organizations looking at quality, including Medicare, uh, which is adding a fall risk quality measure to its uh, physician's voluntary reporting program. Uh, and you can certainly get information about that at cms.hhs.gov uh, if you're interested. So now to really transition into how we can begin to translate this research into practice, uh, I want to again compliment you that you provided us both some methods and some tools on how to go about getting the screening done. Uh, I still feel there's a real challenge in uh, how we can begin to execute the intervention, that is the multiple um, factorial fall assessment, um, and I think maybe that's one thing I'd love to hear more about today in, in the Q&A. So at this point, I'd like to go ahead and turn to questions from our callers. Um, your questions can certainly include how to use the information to make improvements. Uh, feel free, again, to share examples of what you may already be doing or what you've been testing in your settings um, or what you're planning to do with it. So at this point, I'd like to turn the call over to Camille, our operator. Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be opened, so you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero, one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key. There will be one moment for questions to queue up. Oh, great. Thank you, Camille. And then, David Gans, I guess if you could take this moment um, to talk a little bit about how you may prioritize this. Obviously, you're a practicing geriatrician, although your area of clinical interest is, is fall screening and prevention. Um, when you see patients, how do you try to prioritize this against all the other things you're asked to do um, as a geriatrician? Right, and I think, Dr. Shu, that's a really uh, good question. You know, uh, we the screening part is relatively easily accomplished, as you mentioned. The, key, the hard part is remembering to do all the seven components of the assessment. And I, I think if push came to shove, the um, gait and balance examination and the medication review would sort of be on the top of my list. Um, but there are a couple sort of conceptual ways to think about this. One is to think about which components are most malleable, meaning if you find an abnormality on one of the components, is there actually something Thing you can do about it. Mm. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's one approach. One is, another approach is to, to look at the one that's most likely to predict future falls and therefore, you know, you're more likely to find something, you know, an abnormality would be more important potentially. But um, 
I think the issue of malleability uh, is a big one, um, and medication review is good in that sense because, uh, um, you know, it's potentially under the clinician's control to stop a medication, although sometimes patients don't like to have their medication stopped. Great. Well, thank you, and that's a great practical approach, certainly. Uh, Camille, do we have any calls in the queue at this time? Yes, our first question comes from Elmerist Hospital Center. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Uh, hi, this is Jeff Fine. I'm the Director of Rehab Medicine and the Chair of our Falls Prevention Committee for the hospital. Um, I had a question about, uh, for Dr. Gans as to if you feel that this uh, literature analysis and, uh, can be applied to an inpatient setting. That's a really good question. Um, we were really focused on outpatients, and I'll tell you why. Um, outpatients, um, most of the literature is actually, that I've reviewed, um, is outpatients, and I was thinking about clinicians in office practice. However, um, inpatients are a very special group because they're at ultra high risk. In some sense, they don't almost need to be screened. They need to be, all the prophylactic measures need to be implemented for them. That would be my attitude because by virtue of being admitted, that means they're quite ill. Many of them are having mental status changes. And so it's almost, it behooves the hospital to have some sort of formal um, fall prevention protocol that's applied uniformly, um, at least in my view, without necessarily having to go through the process of screening, um, maybe an age-based protocol. I, I don't know what your thoughts are about that, but they're all at very high risk once they're admitted. With, with our data set, we have a, a, a rich sort of data collection around falls for every fall that happens in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, we've, we've now taken the approach where we're looking at the data in a multivariate way because it's difficult to, for us to assess the effectiveness of our interventions uh, when we're just looking at sort of linear, linear relationships. Right. So we, we started to use this uh, similar type approach with a multivariate analysis of our falls to try to sort of drill down on, on what in our population in particular, we're a municipal trauma center, uh, what are the risk factors for us in, in our house? Mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I was surprised in the article that uh, orthostatic hypertension was not found to be a predictive variable. Right. Uh, I, I think that, you know, our early assessments, we did feel that orthostasis was a contributing factor, but maybe once we have our multivariate analysis done, it'll turn out that it's the medications uh, in particular as opposed to the absolute orthostasis as an isolated factor. Well, I, I do want to respond to that and say that I think this is one of those situations where the population that you're looking at is key. Um, you know, we did go to pains in the article to say that just because it didn't predict falls well, that is orthostatic hypotension, doesn't mean that it isn't important to assess. And in fact, I think that the type of people who come in, especially people who are volume depleted, who need to be, you know, have fluids given and so on, um, or have infections that are causing them to be hypotensive, that, that kind of thing, um, in a hospital it might turn out to be a very important predictor. And so, yeah, we really did focus on the outpatient setting in this case. Uh, I saw that you're at UCLA. Are, are you affiliated with the VA system there? Yes, I am also. So uh, as we did some of our own research preparing for our falls committee, we noticed a wealth of literature on the VA Department of Defense website mm -hmm. for fall prevention. Uh, in developing your screening tool, the outpatient form, mm -hmm. did you use some of that literature as well? No, um, we really took the approach of looking for articles that were in the, you know, published literature. I'm actually not familiar with the website and what the website has or what the, the data has. We searched PubMed and the 
CINAHL, which is the Cumulative Index of Nursing and Allied Health Literature, and we took anything that made it into the published literature. Um, it's worth clarifying that this was not a super formal quantitative meta-analysis because the um, articles are too um, different one from the next to, to put the data together in a very formal way. If we had been doing that kind of meta-analysis, we would have also searched the gray literature, which includes abstracts and things that are on websites and guidelines and so on. So um, this was um, sort of really focused on trying to develop an algorithm as a first path, realizing that um, this review might need to be updated with as more information comes along. Great. Well, thank you very much for your question. Camille, do we have any other questions in the queue? Yes, our next question comes from Middlesex Hospital. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Thanks. I, I wondered uh, uh, a little more specifics maybe uh, about your second uh, screening uh, question, the history of gait or balance problem. Um, as you know, uh, a problem is uh, always in the eye of the beholder, and uh, you may ask someone whether they've had a gait or balance problem, and they may uh, underestimate it or, or downplay it. So I'm wondering, um, first of all, uh, I assume you get kind of a family input, and uh, if you're anything like me, you'll get differences of opinion between uh, the uh, family and the uh, patient sometimes. And also, in terms of an objective measurement, you know, just watching these patients get up from their chair or walking down the hall, I mean, you may have already kind of made up your mind before asking them uh, that they do have a gait or balance problem. Um, and then finally, um, where I think all of us in healthcare are interested in health literacy, and I'm wondering how you personally ask someone who uh, may have uh, problems with health literacy, how you ask them that question. I'm sure if you ask some people, do you have a gait or balance problem, they're not going to know really what you're, what you're getting at. Those are really good questions. Um, I, I just wanted to say regarding the first point about gait or balance, um, the, the, this, was a, this uh, question actually came from a study that was done, I believe, in Singapore. Um, when we reviewed the literature, we found studies from all over the world, and I'm not even sure how that question was asked. Um, in, its, in, the, in the native tongue of the people potentially who, who were being asked it. But um, in the Assessing Care of Vulnerable Elders study, when we did a survey of older people, we asked the question at, as a walking or balance problem. Do you have a walking or balance problem? And also with regard to who are you asking, you know, is it the patient, is it the family member? It's always both in my view because just as you said, I mean, the, oftentimes you're going to get different answers and uh, you have to it's, as part of geriatrics, it's key to seek collateral information. Um, but these screening questions are, you know, just a first pass. Uh, there's no question that watching somebody walk is worth, in some ways, just as much. And if you do get the chance to watch somebody walk, you may have the answer to your question. Um, and we talk about that a little bit in our multifactorial evaluation, that, that, you know, you may be able to see immediately that they have a gait and balance problem and you're done. And at least from my perspective, that's as good as asking them if you get a chance to do that. Well, that's great. So, uh, Dr. Gans, if I can actually ask you to circle back to the health literacy question, because mm -hmm. I think that's really important too. Dealing with this population that may have cognitive impairment, there may be cultural issues, uh, there may be educational issues, how would you advise us to ask that question uh, so we have at least the right sensitivity um, when we ask it? 
Yeah, I mean, I wish I could find a better word than balance. I mean, I think that the best you can do is is probably, you know, ask about, you know, are you finding it more difficult to walk these days or, you know, do you find yourself getting dizzy or losing your balance? I mean, these have been the approaches that I've taken. Um, if anyone on the line has a better suggestion, honestly, I'd love to hear it because um, I'm sure there are other people out there who found good formulations for um, how to ask this question, um, you know, it's 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 just one of those things, and this is where you know probably it's more the art than the science. You have to figure out you know with each patient how to approach them, um, and I think that's as much as I can say, at least from my own knowledge base. Great. Well, thank you very much. Let's go to another call, Camille. Thank you. Our next question comes from South Dakota Department of Health. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Hi, my name is uh, Bob Coolidge. I'm a pharmacist with the South Dakota Department of Health. I have a question related to the documentation specific to the patient's use of psychotropics. Could you provide an example of how a clinician would document a conclusion of the fall assessment related to a person's use of psychotropic medication? Okay. So. Is that the end of your question? I'm sorry. How would a clinician document their conclusion related to a resident's use of a psychotropic medication? Okay. Uh, I mean, how I do it is just how I do it, but, um, uh, you know, oftentimes what happens is we find that, you know, a patient is taking, let's say, a benzodiazepine. Um, we would like them to discontinue it or decrease it. And it depends on the situation um, that, it, you know, it's going on. Usually what I will document is that I've had a conversation with the patient. I've indicated that it's, you know, I think that the patient should no longer be on it. And sometimes I will decline to prescribe refills on that medication if I feel very strongly because of the patient has a history of previous falls that this is something that I can't do, you know, knowing what I know. Um, other times there may be circumstances where it seems appropriate if they have um, special needs that warrant the use of a benzodiazepine, for example. Um, more pertinently, uh, when you're looking at things like antipsychotic agents, which um, oftentimes have to be continued despite risks um, if the patient has some sort of psychotic disorder, um, you know, I will acknowledge the risk. Um, for example, I have a nursing home patient who's uh, actually taking an antidepressant, um, and I discussed it with the psychiatrist, and we decided that it's a, the risk-benefit trade-off favored continuing to use the antidepressant despite the fact that the resident was falling, and our goals then changed to minimizing injury. And so we just worked more on the front of preventing the resident from having uh, injuries. And so um, sometimes your goals have to shift depending on um, the risk benefit profile of the medicine. Uh, you, have to, you may have to continue the medicine. So I hope that answers your question. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much for the question, Bob. Camille, how about we go to another question? Thank you. Our next question comes from St. Michael's Hospital, Toronto. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yes, hello. I have a question for an inpatient population. We are trying to build an um, interprofessional documentation because we are going to go computerize remote okay. care into the assessment. And the question is, uh, are you two questions for screening for falls being validated for inpatient, and how would you compare uh, your screening tool to the mole scale? Very good question. Um, 
the answer to the first question, our um, tools have not been validated for anything, either inpatient or outpatient. This is the first time um, that the literature, at least, has been synthesized. What I can say is that um, that our findings confirm guidelines that were released by the um, jointly by the American Geriatric Society and the British Geriatric Society that are published in 2001 in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. So to the extent that we um, found the same thing that the consensus guidelines suggested, that's a form of validation or confirmation. However, this was really focused on an outpatient and not an inpatient population, um, as uh, was discussed earlier. And so I do, we do use the Morse Fall assessment tool uh, in our nursing home, actually, at the VA. And um, I actually think that it may be more appropriate, the Morse tool may be more appropriate for inpatients because they're all, by outpatient criteria, if somebody is a resident of a nursing home or an inpatient in a hospital, their risk of falling is probably at least four or five-fold that of the average community dweller. The number that I'm aware of is that um, there are about 150 falls per year in a 100-bed nursing home. So what that means is that on average, everybody falls, you know, one and a half times. Of course, it's not always the same people. Some people don't fall at all and some fall several times. But that's as compared to, you know, a quarter to a third chance of falling in one year uh, for the average community dweller. So when you get up to very high risk, our, our uh, screening tools are not going to distinguish. Everybody's going to screen positive potentially, or many people will. Uh, and you may need to turn to a tool like the Morse Fall Assessment Tool for your documentation. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, and next question please, Camille. Our next question comes from Brown University. Please go ahead, your line is now open. Hello, uh, we'd like to ask about the practicality of encouraging health staff for using your recommendations. For example, uh, given the fact that it's easy to have a pre-visit questionnaire written, we agree that's a nice tool. And in the clinic setting, how can program directors encourage house staff to actually observe this gate problem? For example, do you suggest that we have the patients get up and go, or do you just suggest that we try to incorporate it into the usual circumstance of the visit, like walking, watching the patient walk into the room? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that because I like to always sort of as a benchmark think to my own, you know, think about my own clinical practice and there's my patients come in with five different problems and I, I'm lucky if I get to address their falls alongside of all those other four problems. Usually the patient isn't interested in me addressing their history of falls. They want me to address their acute complaint, whatever it is, and it really is true that usually the acute complaint comes first. And so my view has been that we need to integrate into our routine observation of the patient sort of the fall risk assessment. So if you have a chance to walk the watch the patient walk into the exam room, that's probably the best way. If you need to watch the patient transition from the history where perhaps they're sitting on a chair to getting onto the exam table to do the physical examination, you get an opportunity to watch them get up from that chair and try to clamber up onto that exam table and then you know a ton about their quadriceps muscle strength, about their balance. And I actually think that as a first pass, how staff or just anybody, practicing physicians, should just take advantage of the time they already have when things are going on um, that they can use to sort of, you know, see if this patient does in fact have a gait or balance problem. Um, 
And so I tend to favor just taking advantage of the time that's already being used for these, these um, for the, the physical exam or the history or the, the patient visit in general. Um, and um, the other thing I've been thinking a lot about, if you want to do something educational, is creating a laminated card um, that potentially has the two screening questions. And it says, you know, if, you're, if, you, if the patient answers yes to either one, then these are the seven things that you should at least think about doing, you know, and you have the seven things in the article. And, and so something like that, sort of like a two plus seven formulation or, or something like that might be something to use for house staff. Now, those are at least my initial thoughts. You know, and I'm delighted to hear you ask the question about how can we begin to make this part of our education process because getting upstream obviously will take us a whole lot further. But part of what I, I get out of your question or what comes to my mind is how can we make this uh, how can we make the screenings done reliably? And I think that's a huge challenge, particularly in the house staff population when they're, when they're pulled in so many different directions between inpatient duties, clinical duties, continuing to build their knowledge base. Um, and I guess I have two thoughts about that I would add into it. I think making it clear whose job it is to perform the falls assessment is important. In, in, in however you decide to do that, whether it's the physician responsibility, the house staff responsibility, the medical assistant responsibility, it's important that those roles are clear. And I think the other thing that will greatly increase both the importance of that lesson to house staff and simply the reliability of your system is at some point along the way measuring the results. That is to say, how are we doing as a system at completing and documenting these evaluations? And I, I would like to add in that um, in our group at UCLA and RAND that's working, we're working with five medical practices around the country, and one of the biggest problems we've had is figuring out how to delegate tasks from physicians to non-physician um, staff that work uh, in tandem with the physicians. Um, for example, delegating orthostatic vital signs. Or, um, so this process of figuring out whose role it is to do what is really tricky because it involves changing job descriptions almost. And um, sometimes the physicians aren't sure, is this something they want to delegate? And, then, and so it just gets into this whole thing and, and it's actually a really complicated problem. Did that address your question? Yes, thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. Camille, do we have another question on the line, please? Yes, thank you. Our next question comes from Tri-City Medical Center. Your line is open. Please go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, as a neurologist, I had the privilege of having many patients with gait difficulties funneled directly to me as outpatients. And so that these were individuals who came fully aware and complaining of gait issues. And usually the diagnostic efforts would narrow down along the realm of, neuro of uh, neuropathy, medications, all of the things which you raise. Problematic, however, is that in trying to encourage individuals to use adaptive uh, mechanisms or techniques, particularly the use of a, a simple as a cane, getting the third leg down on the ground for safety was extraordinarily difficult and the population is extremely resistant to those concepts. Other things that we tried to do uh, from my clinical experience was getting home health in with a OT evaluation to look at the home situation and address the risk factors, et cetera. But even in, the, even in that population who acknowledges a problem with gait, it's a, another story trying to put in preventive measures. What has your experience been in that regard? Thank you. 
I'm so glad you, you know, I guess this is just, it's, it feels like deja vu to me. I mean, it, this is exactly the problem that I have, which is that uh, for obvious reasons, you know, as people get older, they feel that their independence is being threatened. And getting somebody to use a walker is five times as difficult as getting them to use a cane. And even getting them to use a cane is extraordinarily difficult. Um, and um, I have tried different strategies to convince patients that this is a good idea. One of them is to try to really make them cognizant of their risks. Um, sometimes I need to sort of um, sort of mention to them that if they fall and they break their hip, they could end up in a nursing home. And, and to some of them, that represents that, that approach is reasonable. It's a, it's a little bit threatening for some patients, so I wouldn't recommend it for all. But some of them need to hear it because they're just so resistant. Um, just so they have some, because they also don't want to be in a nursing home. And so maybe if they're trading the two off, they, they think a little bit differently about it. Um, and sometimes I just express concern. So I say, you know, I'm really concerned for your safety, you know. And, and, but at, at the end of the day, the re reality is the patient, assuming that they have decision-making capacity, um, is the ultimate arbiter of what they do. And um, I can't force them to do it, you know. So this comes to the whole point of, you know, sort of the ethics of what we're trying to do, you know, and sort of um, what we can accomplish. I mean, I think at some point we sort of have to acknowledge the limits of what we can do, acknowledge that there are trade-offs between a person's perceived independence and their safety. Um, and this gets to a whole lot of other issues also. For example, patients who are at high risk for falls because of cognitive impairment, oftentimes we'd like to have them supervised, um, have 24-hour supervision, and um, patients with early stage dementia will often be extraordinarily resistant to any kind of supervision. And so again, it gets to that independence versus safety trade-off, which is sort of a bigger paradigm that this whole Kane and Walker problem falls into. So I just like to take a step back and acknowledge the limitations of what I can do and that my job is really to be as persuasive as I can, but then acknowledge sort of the limits of what I can do. Well, that's great, and you know, and I would add to that there is a growing body of literature um, in the patient self-management arena of chronic care that, that instructs us as clinicians and providers how we can get our patients engaged to make those behavior changes. Um, and one of the take-home lessons there uh, that is intuitively obvious, but that patients will only do what they're motivated to do or what they want to do. Uh, I think one of the challenges is we often overwhelm patients with the behavior changes that we expect from them, uh, and that simply trying to get some information from their frame of reference as what's important to them is often the entree into then referencing the behavior change back to what's important in their life. And so that's one strategy that may sometimes work. Um, let me ask you, sir, from the neurologist from Tri-City, what have you uh, used that you found effective? Uh, actually, all of the things you've mentioned, you know, I think you know, you, you try to explain the risk factors. You, ex you demonstrate your compassion and your concern. I mean, your genuine concern that the, they not return to the hospital with their fractured hip. Uh, the explanation about nursing home uh, issues. Sometimes you talk to family members, uh, or you have to get permission to talk to family members because it often also has an implication for driving risk. Uh, you know, the same unsteadiness of gait can also uh, reflect itself in a, a driving risk in terms of their ability to handle the accelerator and the brake properly. Uh, I've tried all of those, and yet at the at the at the end of the day, uh, I, w I I have the same 
frustrations and lack of success that you've described, which which really leads me to my next issue is, do you have any intention of addressing that particular problem uh, in a in a you know peer-reviewed, studied fashion? You know, what are the best mechanisms? What can we do to convince people to do what's in their best interest when they, when they are cognitively able to receive it? Obviously, in the patient with cognitive deficits, it's very it's a very uh, challenging task. Uh, perhaps what I'm really expressing is my own frustration for my lack of success in this arena. <laughs> right, and I'm totally empathetic. Uh, you know, I think it would be, it's an interesting idea to try to explore what are the best approaches, and um, I would almost feel like we need to go to other uh, diseases that have been looked at. I mean, I think of, I happen to be working on a project involving self-management of diabetes right now, and um, uh, one of the things that was done for those diabetics was they had support groups, but it turns out that getting people to control their sugars is, is very, very difficult. Um, you know, it reminds me of, of adolescents and, and their unwillingness to use insulin uh, if they have type 1 diabetes because of the, the fear of the shame of, of, you know, needing to do this injection before or eating a meal or whatever. Um, in, in some ways, older people are facing the same kind of challenges. So, you know, before jumping into the literature and doing a study, you know, I, I, the first thing I'd like to do is sort of see, are there um, uh, analogies in other diseases in other populations where, and, and what are the, you know, strategies? And, you know, maybe there are motivational strategies. Maybe it has to do with sort of um, self-perception. I would guess that the psycho psychology literature would have a lot to say about this. So um, I would probably want to start and see what's been done in other areas first and before going on to, to look at this. But I think it, it's an interesting topic. Great. Well, thank you, David. Um, Camille, another caller, please. Thank you. Our next question comes from Interior Health Authority. Please go ahead. Interior Health, are you there? Your line is now open for questions. Okay, we'll move on to our next question. Our next question comes from University Health Network. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Oh, hello. Hi. Hello. Yeah, we can hear you. Go ahead, please. Okay. Uh, my name is Carol, and uh, we're from University Health Network. We, this is more of a comment as opposed to a question. We ran a post prevention program, and my question a while ago was, uh, how do you, what do you do when you have a patient that answers uh, yes to a gait and walking problem? And what we do, uh, the patients that come to our clinic already have been identified as fallers or at high risk for falls. And our physiotherapist would uh, do a uh, Berg balance test and uh, time up and go. And, um, and then what we do is uh, um, we we also have a geriatrician that would uh, do a uh, physical on, on these patients, a complete compre comprehensive assessment on their other risks for falls, and we enroll them into a 12-week program that consists of uh, education and exercise, and the exercise is more geared into uh, improving their balance and strengthening their, their muscles. And what we found, we've been running this program for one year, and from the participants, we found that there has been improvement in their uh, balance and in their strength. But the most important thing is where it comes to the education, it gives them an awareness of what their risk factors are in falling, and uh, just the awareness and the, um, 
education to prevent them from further falls, I think has been um, verbalized that it did help them. Well, thank you for, for you know, sharing your experience. Um, you know, I would add that um, in the same meta-analysis that was a, a precursor to our study, um, education alone was not found to be effective in preventing falls, but exercise is, is effective in preventing falls. And I would say that if you do use education, it's key to incorporate education along with other things because um, you need to do something directly to address their underlying risks. And, um, and sometimes patients are all too keenly aware of the fact that they have risks. But um, I, I think that the strategy that you've taken is excellent in incorporating exercise. Um, and also, I wanted to point out that, that a lot of the stuff that I've discussed or we've written about in this article can be done by a variety of practitioners. There's no rule that says that a physician has to do one part and a nurse practitioner has to do another part or a physical therapist. So, I mean, the key is that, the, that the, the people who are doing the work have the competency in the area that they're being asked to work in, and, and a lot of times um, that's more important than what their formal title is. So I'm glad that you're doing something multidisciplinary in this area. Yes, good. Yes, thank you. Yes, And we also have an occupational therapist that would um, do a home assessment, which I think is also uh, very important. Yes, that's one of the seven components. Yes, I agree with that. And we also have a dietitian if they're having problems with their nutrition issues that this one is also taken care of. Mm -hmm. And we also have a behavioral uh, therapist that looks after their fear of falling and their confidence in performing things without falling. That's great. I mean, that's very comprehensive. That's uh, what we've listed, by the way, in terms of the seven components is the minimum, perhaps, that needs to be done for somebody who's at high risk. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other things that should be considered. And I think a lot of the things that you mentioned fall into that, um, into that sort of additional stuff that probably can make an additional difference. Well, great. And thank you very much for your comments. That's very helpful. Uh, Camille, can we go to another caller, please? Our next question comes from Holy Redeemer Home Care. Please go ahead. Hi, my name is Mike Madden. I'm the rehab manager at Holy Redeemer. We're a, a large home care agency in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Uh, we, just a point of emphasis, home health has been mentioned a couple of times, but even as far as the evaluation of the patient with uh, multiple factors affecting their balance, um, you know, many of the things that we see in the patient's home are very, very difficult to deal with. Um, in a physician's office, I can imagine, you know, that, that is magnified so many more times with the uh, complexity of other issues that come up. But just to, to emphasize, you know, the role of home health in the evaluation and in the, um, the treatment of patients with balance problems. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on that and say that home health is like an additional pair of eyes for me. I mean, it, essentially, um, you know, the goal is to, to, to get the other piece of the picture. When we have the patient in the office, we are looking at the host factors, you know, the factors that are pertain to the patient and the patient's risks. But then the host factors interact with the environment and so if we can see what the environment looks like, then it sort of puts the pieces together. So if somebody had, I, I, you know, but I think that it needs to be done together with um, the full multifactorial assessment. In other words, simply doing home health with home hazard reduction, um, as you mentioned, is a challenging thing because patients have lived a certain way for many, many years and they don't necessarily want to move their stuff around or get rid of their throw rugs or whatever the problem is. So the key point, again, is to do a multi-component um, assessment to address the multiple causes of falls. Right, and I, I think, you know, like you mentioned, the home hazard uh, assessment is just a small component of the home health piece. You know, with occupational therapy looking at low vision problems, 
with the nurses looking at medication management, we can really see what's really happening in the home um, and not just what the patient or family are, are able to report. And also in terms of compliance, you know, to engage the family and other pieces of the community and having the patient carry over some of the recommendations that are made by the physician and, and by the home health practitioners. Yeah, I agree very much with that. Yeah, thank you, Mike. That's, those are tremendously important pieces. It, that raises a question for me, uh, David Gans, about what about the environment outside the home? Um, realizing how difficult it is to impact the home environment, what about the, the environment outside the home? Is there anything uh, that you're aware of going on to try to, that's meaningful to try to make that safer for our patients? Or conversely, when we identify patients at high risk, is there any ways that you would advise them to manage the environment outside the home? Um, that's a really good question. Um, there, this is sort of an emerging literature. There are a couple articles looking at footwear and falls. And of course, footwear has some relevance because um, when patients go outside, you know, there are so many potential hazards. Um, it's like we would need a whole new, you know, department of, um, you know, landscaping or something to fix the whole, all the sidewalks. And, you know, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So, um, you know, uh, footwear and falls, the data are still early. There's some observational studies that suggest that um, patients are more likely to fall, you know, if they're um, barefoot or in their socks, but I emphasize that this stuff is very early. Um, there is uh, some um, literature on using special equipment for walking in the snow, believe it or not, in northern latitudes. Um, and so there's some work looking at things that you can put on your shoes that actually um, help to dig into the snow to make you less likely to fall. Um, but in the bigger picture, it sort of brings up this issue of falls as a multi-level problem. There's the patient risks, and then there are the environmental risks. And I think that trying to create communities where um, we are sensitive to, you know, the conditions that people uh, walk around in to make, you know, to, to make the environment more accessible is sort of a huge project. But if we could just start by making the sidewalks nice and smooth, I think that would be a wonderful thing, um, sort of outside the reach of probably my career, but that's something that, you know, um, in the long run, we, you know, to, to make our communities more friendly for people who want to do physical activity is probably useful not just for older people, but for everyone. Great. And Mike, thank you for your comments. That's great. Camille, I think we have time for one more question. Our last question comes from Heron Hospital. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hello. My name is Paula Alters, and I'm the risk manager here at this small rural hospital. We also have a rehab um, center uh, affiliated with Rehab Institute of Chicago. And you had earlier mentioned a Morse fall assessment tool. Mm -hmm. uh, we currently have a, a very uh, active fall reduction program, but I'm not familiar with this tool. Can you give me some information where I might be able to find it? That's a good question. Um, I use it in clinical practice, but I actually I don't claim to be an expert on inpatient or rehab fall risk assessment. Um, I would start with um, a PubMed or Google Scholar search under Morse fall risk assessment tool and see what you come up with. Um, I don't have the literature at the top, uh, okay. just in my fingers right now. Is it M-O-R-S-E? Correct. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Great. And thank you for your question, Paula. Well, I want to thank uh, all you participants on the phone for being on this call and asking great questions. Uh, it's been really a wonderful discussion, um, but really that's all the time we have for questions right now. Uh, I want to give you, David Gantz, an opportunity to offer us any closing thoughts or comments. 
Uh, thanks, thanks, Dr. Shute. I, I think the point I want to make uh, is that, you know, the points you've already heard, the basic principles. Screening for falls does not have to be a painful thing. Um, it's really easy to do. Uh, you don't necessarily have to do any fancy gait and balance tests to sort out whether somebody's at high risk. And just to think more broadly, when you do find somebody at high risk, that when you're, you know, you're doing a full risk assessment on um, somebody who's high risk, you're also almost doing a full comprehensive geriatric assessment. So doing the full fall assessment as we've documented uh, in our article almost gets you to the comprehensive geriatric assessment which helps to look at the different factors in patients' lives that, that put them at high risk for not just falls but other problems. Great. Well, I'd like to thank you again, uh, Dr. David Gans, for your participation on this call, uh, for such good research and providing such an enlightening discussion. As a reminder to our audience, I'd like to uh, mention again that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion, again, will take place on March 21st. Our featured guest author at that time is Dr. Paul Ricker, and will he, he will be discussing his article, Development and Validation of Improved Algorithms for the Assessment of Global Cardiovascular Risk in Women, the Reynolds Score, and that is published in the February 14th edition of JAMA. 2007. Uh, again, this call is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for your participation and have a good day. This concludes today's teleconference. To end this call, simply hang up your phone. Thank you.